Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast includes explicit language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 10th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the upcoming NBA play-in tournament, why LeBron James hates it, and whether it's here to stay. We'll also discuss the latest brouhaha over fighting in the National Hockey League, and whether the sport's bloodlust is ever going to go away. And we'll assess what NFL wide receiver DK Metcalf proved by finishing not close to first place in the 100 meters at a California track meet. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4 on David Duke. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. With us from out west, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3 and the upcoming Season 6, Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel. Hey, I'm, what's up, man? How y'all doing this morning? Doing okay. Feeling like... I don't exactly know what to small talk about and was just hoping no, something no. would develop organically. I, ha- I have two things then. Cause did okay. we, have we had a chance to praise you for your contribution for the piece that ran in Slate? Stefan, did we talk about that last week or did we, did we catch up on that? No, I don't think we did. About, you know, about Josh's great piece that he wrote with Molly and Susan Matthews uh, about, Molly Josh, Olmstead. do you want to tell the people? Yeah, Molly Olmstead, do you want to tell, tell the people what that was about? Because it was a great... I mean, it just, it kind of just changed the conversation on Philip Roth's biographer in the last few weeks, and Josh was headed that up. Thank you, Joel. Yeah, about uh, Blake Bailey, who taught eighth grade at the school in New Orleans, where a lot of my friends went. I did not go to that school, but when I went to high school, a lot of the folks that I became friends with had, had had this guy as a teacher, and we tried to give a full picture of what it was like to be in this guy's classroom, um, both for the people that he would later allegedly kind of prey on, um, but also for the folks who were just kind of there and in his presence. And yeah, I was really proud of how the piece turned out. And thank you for uh, bringing it up. It was fantastic. That's probably not the small talk you intended on having at the top of the show. No, but, that's more medium yeah. talk, maybe <laughs> maybe big talk, but um, happy happy to discuss it. Yeah, well, there you go. I'm glad we could get it in. So congratulations, uh, Josh, Molly, Susan, rest of the Slate team. That was a great piece. And if you are a Slate reader, you should check it out for sure. Last year in the NBA bubble, the Portland Trailblazers beat the Memphis Grizzlies 126-122 in the league's inaugural playoff play-in game. It was a close game. It was fun. It was competitive. And it allowed us all to have a little bit more Damian Lillard in our lives. And so it was no surprise when the NBA expanded the play-in concept this year. The top six teams in each conference are locked into the postseason. Teams seven to 10 in each conference now have to square off to make it into the real deal playoffs. With a week to go in the regular season, 
The number eight Hornets and number seven Celtics would play in the East with the winner making the playoffs. The loser then having to play either the Wizards or the Pacers for the final Eastern Conference spot. In the West, the number eight Warriors would play the number seven Lakers in an extremely juicy Steph versus LeBron play-in matchup. Tasty. Very tasty. The winner of that game would make the playoffs. The loser would, again, face a win-or-go-home game against either the Spurs or the Grizzlies in a less tasty matchup, one must admit, for the final Western playoff spot. Given the Lakers' precarious position here, it is perhaps unsurprising that LeBron James recently said about the play-in, whoever came up with that shit needs to be fired. And so I pose the question to you, Joel Anderson. Does whoever came up with that shit need to be fired? I can understand why LeBron might feel that way. And he probably has more influence on getting somebody fired uh, among the player ranks than anybody else. But I actually think that person should be promoted from coming up with the idea itself to successfully convincing the league and its broadcasting partners to implement it. Like, this is evidently and obviously compelling stuff. You know, you're watching teams play hard late in the regular season for playoff positioning as opposed to outright tanking or sitting players to prepare for the playoffs. Like, most years, you don't get a game like you got the other night with Anthony Davis going off of 42-12 and 12 against the Suns. You don't get teams usually playing that hard this late in the year because they're trying to, you know, rest up, get ready for the playoffs. And there's actual stakes attached to these games. And I think that's, for all of us who watch basketball or NBA fans in recent years, we sort of fretted about the diminished importance of the regular season, right? Like tanking has always been a problem. And there's probably not much you can do about somebody like the Thunder, which, you know, is bottoming out and needs to do something with all of his draft picks. But, you know, the Sixers have gave up on being competitive for years. You know, when the Warriors signed KD, it effectively made the regular season meaningless for a number of years. So the NBA has had to come up with ways to appeal to fans. And this is pretty good. Um, and, and it also pushes back in a year I mean, I don't know about you all, but every time I want to turn in to watch an important basketball game this year, there's always somebody missing. You know what I mean? Like, Joel Embiid is out. Kawhi is sitting out this game. Bron is out. Um, so at least they've figured out a way to make some segment of the regular season games entertaining, compelling, meaningful, leading into a playoff, which, you know, the NBA is all about the playoffs. That's what most of us tend to care about. So they've they've figured out a way, I think, to make us care about it. And to me, that seems like something worth rewarding if you're NBA employee number 42 or whatever, whoever, whoever I think that, so, you know, look no further than Washington, Josh, for a great justification for this format. Um, you know, Russell Westbrook and the, the Wizards have been on an incredible tear. They're like 13 and three. They have gone from also ran to in the playoffs as of right now. They are the number nine seed. That has been really great for fans in Washington and also around the league. You know, you turn on the NBA network or ESPN and you watch a game that includes Russ trying to not only break Oscar Robertson's career uh, record for triple doubles, but to get his team pretty much single-handedly because Bradley Beal has been a little bit hurt and has not been carrying them the way Russ has to get them into the playoffs. That's been great. Or you turn on any Warriors game and 
to watch Steph Curry. You know, Josh, you said it's been appointment viewing, and it's even more so because they are playing for something in a season that they might have not been contending at all. Talking about Stephen, Josh, have you watched the Warriors game since that segment? Appointment viewing. Have you watched Steph Curry and the Warriors play since that segment? I have not. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Proceed. Okay. Um, the other point that I, I wanted haven't really to make, watched any NBA game though, so it's it's not like I'm uh, ex- excluding him. But for fans who are interested in making an I enjoy appointment, watching Joel, the highlights. I've been watching. I've been watching the highlights. I've got a. I've, I've had other things going on, Joel. Awesome. You know, I've been. Bu- you know, I've been busy. He wrote my, a story uh, with my That's with my fair. journalism. Oh. With my journalism. Oh, okay, you guys um, turned it on me now. Okay, well, I just when you said it was. A, I mean, if a, if it's appointment watching, it's appointment watching. Okay, but okay. <laughs> um, the other the other point I want to make before we move on is that that adjusting the playoffs, not just for TV but for the reality of the size of leagues and the history of the way the NBA in particular has managed the playoffs is a good thing. There have been 16 teams in the playoffs since 1984. Um, Making this adjustment is a smart thing to do at a time when viewership has been down and the idea of, of, of regaining relevance or changing things up to gain fan interest, particularly given what's happened the last two years with the league and the country and the world, is a smart thing to do. The NBA has always had a glut of teams making the playoffs, going, going way back to its founding in the late 1940s. This is nothing unusual to say, okay, we're going to have 20 teams out of 30 make the playoffs. I looked back, there were years in the early years where six out of eight teams made the playoffs or 12 out of 17 or eight out of 10. Having a lot of teams in the playoffs is nothing unusual, so that should not be a knock on the play-in tournament. Yeah, I mean, the kind of elegance here is that you have a format that allows every team in the league that's not like explicitly trying to lose to, you know, have a a chance to be quote unquote in the race while also having fewer teams than there were before actually be locked into the playoffs. And you got to be careful with your terminology, Stefan. I know you're, I know you're big on being careful on terminology, but when you said the wizards are in the playoffs, they're not actually in the playoffs. They're in the play in position, but you don't act, you're not actually in the playoffs unless you secure one of those top eight, Seeds oh, by winning it. in this play on in this play in round. I, I I I that is that is, I don't I don't buy that. If you make the play in round, you are in the playoffs. You're telling <laughs> me the that you, so did UCLA the not make the NCAA tournament <laughs> because well, they played not, in that play in game. I'm just saying that's not how the NBA considers it. Like the Grizzlies didn't make the playoffs. No, that's how year. I consider it anyway. All right, well, um, you're you know out on an island. That's fine. You can be there. <laughs> I'd like but, it here, but it is. I think a good thing to have players and teams mad about um, not making it in or potentially not making it in or not being able to coast their way in, which is, um, you know, what the situation is with the Lakers. They obviously won the championship last year. They're obviously one of the best teams in the league when healthy. They finished, um, they started the year 21 and six and have only struggled because. Um, LeBron James and Anthony Davis have not um, been healthy all year. And so you could actually make the argument, Joel, that this expansion and these plan slots are actually more forgiving to a team like the Lakers as opposed to punishing them. I mean, they're they're kind of in this like middle ground 
purgatory area um, where it's it's unclear whether this is going to benefit them or harm them. But if you know if LeBron and AD had been out for even longer, oh yeah, and the Lakers the Lakers could have like still made it into the tenth slot where they would have been out. It's just like unclear in a given year whether this will be like bad for the injured teams or good for them. But it, it just it feels like LeBron is reacting in the way that you would predict him to respond. And it's like actually a positive thing for the NBA that um, a team and a player would be angry about still making it in, but like not in the like d- most desirable position. Yeah. I mean, I think that like they still have a chance. They've right. got a chance. Right. I think in every year it's going to be different. Right. And I think that like maybe they're, there would be another case. Like, let's say that there was a much larger gap between the seventh and eighth seeds and the ninth and tenth seeds. Like, let's say there was a six or seven game gap between those teams. Then you might say, well, you know what? The play, the play in tournament doesn't really seem necessary this year because why would, you know, have these significantly worse teams in the running for a playoff spot? Why would you want to risk that? But, um, you know, you know, this like year. Like, if the, if the Lakers out. and. I guess either one, based on the position now, either the Lakers or Warriors will definitely be in. But like, it's not going to be great for the NBA in a hypothetical scenario in which really bad teams that have records that are way worse than the seven and eight seeds just get lucky or get hot and like knock out a really like marketable team with stars that is better. Like, there is a scenario mm-hmm. in which this would get like really criticized and people would like want to cancel the tournament. Go ahead, Joel. No, no, no. Well, I was going to say Lakers versus Warriors is the game that everybody wants to see. That sounds really cool in a vacuum, but like, God forbid you knock out one of those teams and then you replace them with the Grizzlies or the Spurs. Then it looks a lot less cool because now you got to at least watch four more games of a team that nobody really wants to see, yeah, right? But what I what I like about this is I like two things especially. One is that it does it does devalue the ability of teams to just sit there at seven or eight. You know, some shitty team with a sub five hundred record automatically getting in. Um, it, it 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 reduces the sort of um, the reward for just being mediocre and finishing eighth. So you've got to do something to get in. Like, does it really matter whether it's the 8th, ninth, or 10th, the best team in the conference? They all kind of suck. They all are going to finish at 500 or below. So let them figure it out and make the playoffs. The other thing that's nice about this is that it, 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 it's a way of expanding participation and expanding the playoffs and creating interest without creating a lot of playoff creep. You're not adding another best of five or best of seven series that's going to prolong this into July. Um, this is a, you know, the, the one and done aspect to this is good. You should be, you know, sort of like the wild card game in baseball. I'm fine with that now. You don't finish, you know, in, you don't win your division in these tiny divisions. Play your way in and it's entertaining for fans and that's who we're playing for. It is interesting that baseball terms it a wild card game and consider the, <laughs> considers those full playoff participants. I'm so, I don't know why I'm on such a terminological kick here, but You're it is just like a this. it is just like a labeling and branding exercise because in baseball, I think I I think the way that the NBA has actually branded it is better and smarter because in baseball it feels like um you're not actually a full playoff participant if you make it in 
as one of these wild card teams lose the one game and then you're out. It it feels like you're being lied to as a as a fan. Whereas in this case, I think they're being honest. It's like, okay, you're not a full playoff participant. You just like have to play this like totally separate, like lower tier round of games to make it in to the real thing. But I do think this is important to understand as marketing because the leagues mm-hmm. are doing this because they want inventory of mm-hmm. TV games that people will want to watch. And so it's like, okay, people want to watch game sevens. What is like, how can we create a game seven without it being a game seven? We make it like a single elimination win or go home type game before the playoffs even start. Like it's a clever um, construct of a thing that's like, how can we, it's not like tricking people into watch, but how can we convince people to watch games Mm -hmm. of between teams that aren't that, that great this is a way to do it. And I think it is actually like a good product. Like we saw that in the play in game last year. Like, I don't think people will tune in to a Warriors Lakers game and be like, Oh, the NBA tricked us. Like how, how dare they convince us to watch this like single elimination, like LeBron versus Steph game. Oh, it's, one I, more, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a meaningful game for both of those teams who, if the Lakers don't get healthier and look, the Warriors aren't that good anyway, could conceivably lose in the first round of the playoffs. So now we get to see them play a super meaningful game. Um, and I like what Anthony Davis said um, on after after uh, the Lakers won on Sunday night against Phoenix. He said he likes this. Um, that it's this has given them motivation. This has given them some challenge, given how poorly they've been playing because of injuries and and the the they were facing this prospect of not making the playoffs at all. Let me give let me do just do a, a moment of devil's advocacy here though, right? Um, the NBA regular season is normally eighty two games. It's seventy two, right? That's already sort of a representative sample of a season, right? Like I mean, these teams play 72 games, they end in the position that they're in, and now you're saying, well, the regular season just isn't quite enough to determine who should be in our postseason, and let's play a few more games. Like, obviously, it's a great TV contrivance. It's good for fans. It's good for, you know, interest. But in another way, it does sort of devalue the regular season just a tad because you're saying, we look, we, I know we play all these damn games. Everybody already says we have a very long regular season and maybe we should think of ways of shortening it. But actually, it's not enough to determine who should be in our postseason. And I, I don't mean, know, man. Like you play well, a long as regular it, as season. You've argued, don't finish seventh. Don't finish eighth. But, I, I, well, but I Joel, and Joel, as you've argued, the teams themselves have already devalued the regular season. By, by sitting everyone. Sitting everyone, resting players. Um, and so this is... You know, you could argue that by forcing teams into this structure, the NBA is saying you should value the regular season more and try harder and try to win these games. And that way, you know, you're not in this play-in round. Also, no team seated below number six has ever won a championship. And so I think what they're saying is um, this is just a way to create more interest and excitement among a group of teams that has... um, as, as history as our guide has zero percent chance to actually win a title, so um, what's the harm? I guess I guess the thing is, is that one day we're gonna we're gonna look up and eventually we're gonna say, man, why are we doing this to these teams? I mean, if you're if you're seventh or eighth seed team, that's I mean, we don't have to you know sort of I guess diminish a team for finish seventh or eighth. You could just 
literally be the seventh, eighth team. It might not have anything to do with whether or not you took the regular season seriously or not, whether or not, you know, you, you've been giving, you know, load management to players or whatever. You may just be a fairly mediocre team or you may be at an extremely loaded conference. We, I've seen, there's been years when there have been teams, particularly in the Western Conference, there was a year where the seventh-seeded uh, team won 47 games. That's a really good basketball team. But, but, you're, but you're punishing them for not being great. And I'm just like, well, all right, that's cool. But why would you – I don't know. I, I, again, I, again I, this is some devil's advocacy. I, I'm for this for the most part. But I, could, I, I can understand why the players themselves may look and say, hey, why in the hell are you doing this to us? Like, we already well, play a lot of games. I think we just need to wait for there to be like a really bad outcome of the kind that we've described. Either like the ninth and and tenth teams have just way worse records than the eighth seed and like make their way, you know, into the playoffs regardless. Or the Lakers miss the playoffs this year and the NBA is like, oh, we got our fun high ratings um, at the expense of the Lakers just being out. And then we'll see what kind of stomach the league and its teams and fans have for this. Well, I think at that point, the league will just change the terminology so that the Lakers will have made the playoffs by finishing where they finish. Hey, you know, the NBA has gotten used to the Lakers not being in the playoffs. I mean, they missed the playoffs six times this past decade. So, I mean, it's not that uncommon for them not to be in it too, by the way. Up next, we're talking about fighting in the NHL. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the decline and fall of Albert Pujols. He went from being one of the greatest hitters in baseball history to getting dumped by the Angels in the last year of his mega contract. Jairus discuss Albert and what has befallen him. You have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Yes, it's true. We are about to devote an entire segment to the sport of ice hockey. But instead of discussing one of the best offensive seasons in league history, Edmonton's 24-year-old Connor McDavid reaching 100 points in just 53 games, the first player to do that in 25 years, or Toronto winning its first division title in 21 years, or the weirdness of the COVID-condensed 56-game season that has Canadian teams playing only other Canadian teams, or even Alex Ovechkin becoming an investor in Washington's women's pro soccer team. We're going to talk about the latest example of the NHL stepping on a rake by failing to duly punish a repeatedly violent player for behavior that targeted the heads of two opponents in one ugly sequence. The player is Tom Wilson of the Washington Capitals, and last week, Wilson punched a prone, defenseless New York Ranger in the back of the head, and then moments later flung another Ranger to the ice after ripping off his helmet. Wilson has made a career of dirty behavior, but there doesn't seem to be any cumulative effect. This time, the NHL issued a $5,000 fine, but no suspension. But it did fine the Rangers $250,000 for having the temerity to criticize the league's decision. 
Josh, I think there are two things here that make Tom Wilson an interesting and big story. One is that the NHL looks ridiculous for finding a team that issued a statement 50 times as much as a player who sucker punched one dude and body slammed another. The other is that, and we'll get to this, the attention exposes how anomalous players like Wilson are becoming in the NHL, but how the league is still hanging on to what's left of its culture of violence. So whenever you talk about this stuff, I think that people that are in hockey and that follow hockey um, will have a tendency to say, you just don't understand the culture of the sport or you don't understand the history here. But I think as an outsider, a couple of things are clear by analogy. Number one, the fact that the NHL fined um, the Rangers $250,000 and fined Tom Wilson $5,000 Um, And the Rangers fine was for publicly calling out the NHL for its failure to police um, this violent behavior. It's just classic retaliatory behavior, like what you see in any organization, like when someone complains of sexual harassment and gets fired. I mean, it's it's like um, there are obviously some nuances and that analogy isn't perfect, but it's impossible to look at what the NHL has done in this past week and feel anything other than that, like they're punishing the wrong team or they're punishing the wrong group. And that they're, it's not just that it looks bad, it just shows a kind of rottenness of the culture of the league um, that they did this. The other thing is that the guy who's in charge of, uh, you know, determining suspensions is a former like enforcer who is known for just like fighting and getting a lot of penalty minutes. The guy's name is George Paros. I mean, I mean, can you come up with a more like kind of classic Fox guarding the hen house type situation? I mean, the argument that they make it is like, Oh, he's been, you know, there in the trenches. And so he understands, you know, he can see it on both sides and the, the teams and the players respect him. I mean, just like, how stupid is that idea or, or is that argument? And I think the two things are connected, right? This idea that, oh, we have this precious kind of culture and you can only understand it if you are in it and if you like punched, you know, had blood in your mouth or or whatever. It shows, I think the fact that Paris is in this position and the fact that they've meted out punishment in the way they, they did the culture of hockey has changed. Fighting is down. But there is still this fundamental, like, clutching on to this culture. And, you know, Joel, I, I think this, like, idea that, like, okay, we'll change a little bit, we'll change a little bit. But there's still, like, some fundamental, like, kind of nail-scrabbing on to this thing and just, like, refusal to let it go. Well, and maybe I'm going to, you know, zig where you zagged here, but it seems to me here that maybe the issue isn't fighting and that it's actually just Tom Wilson, who, from everything I've read about in the last few days, he's just a dirty guy who is a threat to the other players on the ice. The video that I watched him punching that guy in the head, that's not a fight. That's just a dirty play. That would be a dirty play in any sport. You know what it actually reminded me of? It reminded me of when Gronk dove into the back of Tredavious White's neck uh, in, a pl- in a play. And I was just like, wow, they allow that? Like the fighting is less grotesque to me than what Tom Wilson was doing that 
But the thing, the thing is, Joel, like and all of us, I think would agree with that. And anyone who is not like a hockey obsessive would agree with that. But then if you like read all these articles and Stefan, you put together like a lot of, of notes on this that were really informative, but like people will say like, oh, you don't understand that he was defending his goalie and it was like in the crease. So that makes it okay. I mean, if you watch it, you're like, that is totally insane for you to believe that. But there's yeah. like a lot of people be like, oh, you're just, you just don't understand or like, you don't know the history or like the, this kind of play. Um, it just like feels like people who follow the sport are like too close to it to really see what's actually going right. on. And, and, and when you, you, you mentioned Josh, the George Paris and how this ruling was reached and the ruling was reached that he was only fined $5,000, which is the maximum that players can be fined by the Department of of, of Infractions or whatever it's called. Um, the Department of Punching People on the Back of the Head. Punching people in the Back of the Head. Because um, it's baked mm-hmm. into, into the collective bargaining agreement. But yes, it was like all incredibly picayune. It's like the this is a scrum. These things happen during a scrum. He was, all, he was protecting the goalkeeper because the player who's the back of the head of the player whom he punched, that player had appeared to kick at the goalie with his skate while he was lying in a prone position, yada, yada, yada. So the question becomes like, at what point does the NHL just say, enough of all of this? The NHL has become much more fluid. It's become much more an offensive game. There are a lot more players like Connor McDavid, who I mentioned at the top, who are artistic and big and talented. And the game itself, it you know, fighting is getting is getting eased out of hockey over the last 20 years. Wow. I mean, it really has. The data backs it up. The style Stephen. of play backs it up. Roster um, development backs it up. The way teams are constructed now. And to, so to some extent, Joel, you're right. This is a Tom Wilson problem. It's not a hockey culture problem because hockey's culture has changed. But there are still players like Tom Wilson. And Tom Wilson is not an enforcer. He's not a goon. He is not on that team just to fight. He's a talented player. They just signed him to a $30 million contract. He's had two 20-goal seasons in the last few years. Um, He plays regularly. He's not like a third-line guy. But there is a history in the NHL of players like Tom Wilson who are good but also seem to have some sort of screw loose where they turn a routine encounter on the boards, in the crease, in the center of the ice, into a violent one. They know where the line is. They know what refs are willing to do, and they know what penalties the league is willing to assess, and Tom Wilson pushes that every time he steps on the ice. There's the threat of something happening every time he's on the ice. Stefan, you need to fight with this guy that wrote this uh, sort of outrageous piece almost 20 years ago. Uh, Who would that Talking be? about fighting, he said, time to get over it. The NHL should embrace its inner fighter and admit that fisticuffs yeah. are part of the I game and not a bad part. I wrote that in the Wall Street Journal. And let the next cowardly, cowardly spear slasher cross-checker Pay right away yeah. with a knuckle sandwich. Yeah, I don't know who, who that, that guy is. Guy? I wrote what that. A, what a, I what mean, a caveman. I, in my defense, and there yeah. really isn't much defense, <laughs> we didn't know much about concussions and brain injuries. And second, that was the culture of the NHL. And the big problem in the NHL then, and to some degree now, is that without retaliation, teams would target the best players on, on, on opposing teams. 
and there'd be more slashing, there'd be more tripping, there'd be more going after the talent, the skill guys, by players who were on the roster only to mete out punishment. But reading that now, it's like, holy shit, you know, wow, could I have been dumber and more naive about the reality of, of this sport that I played when I was a kid? The Capitals posted a tweet, then deleted it. At Capitals chooses violence after the, the Wilson hit. That was an interesting uh, moment in the history of, uh, of social media for them to do that. Um, so if this is a Tom Wilson problem, and if the particulars of the problem are that he's not a goon, and so the team isn't going to send him away because he's too good at hockey for them to want to punish him, they'd be punishing themselves if they punish him, then you know, you have two options. The option that the NHL seems to be embracing here is let the players deal with it right. on the ice. As we all know, what's the solution to somebody who, you know, is a bully? You punch them. You just punch them harder and and uh, repeatedly. That's uh, that's what we were taught. Um, and what, mm. what, what could go mm-hmm. wrong there? Just more people punching each other in perpetuity. That seems to have been the NHL's philosophy <laughs> on this for decades. Doesn't seem to be working. But, like, that, that seems to be what they want to stick with is like, all right, our hands are tied. There's a collective bargaining agreement. We can only find him $5,000. It was in the crease, blah, bitty, blah, bitty, blah, bitty. So um, let, uh, let, let the players deal. Let, let them, uh, you know, punch each other until, you know. Which is what the Capitals one, and the Rangers did two nights after. Yeah. You yeah. Know, the, the, like at the drop, of the, the drop of the puck at the beginning of the game, three fights broke out. They were premeditated, similar to what we used to watch in the NHL. Aren't we encouraging this? Aren't we essentially encouraging this by talking about hockey only when the fights happen, though? Like, if, 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 if fighting was actually bad for hockey and it was bad for the game and they didn't want it in there, then, like, you know, we would never, t- you know, this would be something that like, it, it would, I don't know. I just kind of feel like we reward them for this sort of behavior by well, giving except attention I, to I disagree, it, right? Joel, because I think that this isn't about fighting, first of all. and and Because I, I, it really isn't. I mean, the fighting numbers, there are, the fighting numbers are down to like, it's 0.18 fights per game now. I mean, it is, it's, it's incredibly low. The, both the total number of fights and number of fights per game are at historically low levels. You have to go back to the, you know, before the, like, the 60s and earlier. Um, but wait, Stefan, it's not about fighting, except the, for me, the, the reason that I knew about this in the first place is because everyone on social media was like, what's going on with the Rangers and the Capitals all dropping their gloves at the start <laughs> right. of the next game and just starting to fight each other? Like, the reason, Joel is right. Like, the reason that we're talking about this is because of that kind of choreographed fight. Like, this would have stayed within hockey land if Wilson had just like nearly, I mean, the guy's out for the season. If, if he had just body slammed that dude, that wouldn't have like risen to the level of like national news story. The thing that called attention to it was like this like ritual of them settling their dispute because the NHL wouldn't settle it for them by dropping the gloves and just punching each other at the start of the next game. It is about fighting. It's not about the propensity of of fighting, though. It's what a player like Wilson brings to the sport. He created this. And 
you know, I think that it's, it's important to discuss sort of like what can the league do? Greg Wyshynski, I thought, wrote a really good piece on ESPN about this last week in the NHL. And Wyshynski writes that, that the issue now is that Wilson's antics stick out. And he attributes that to an identity crisis that the NHL is having. Um, he says that the league is in a purgatory right now, stuck between the violent physicality that the league was built on for decades and the speedy offensive majesty of its current galaxy of young stars. It wants to be both. It is frequently neither. Um, and Greg says, go all the way. You know, fighting has been down. Teams don't sign, you know, the enforcer to put on the fourth line. Um, Let's go all the way on the skill side. Play four on four at all times the way they do in overtime. Get rid of offsides. Um, change the rules so you get players like Tom Wilson out of the game entirely. Disincentivize franchises from needing or wanting someone like him. Let me, can, I, can I be the person that's going to say something It'll probably upset a lot of people, by the way, because I don't think there's any. I mean, the, the, the obvious thing to say here is somebody who is not a hockey fan is um, to say, I think that the culture of this sport is allowed to thrive. Like this, this particular piece of it is allowed to thrive because the majority of the players are white. Like in the NFL, Vontez Perfect has like a terrible name. Like even the players, like that's outrageous. And Vontez Perfect. He was suspended 22 games in eight seasons, right? Like, and there's only 16-game seasons in the NFL. By comparison, Tom Wilson has missed 30 games in six years, which is like a drop in the bucket, right? And it's just a, and it's considered a part of the game, and everybody gets to do it. But there's just no way that people would accept this if this was the NFL or the NBA. But in hockey, and I would, I would add in baseball, where they're allowed to throw the ball at people's heads and stuff like that and hurt people in a way, that sort of stuff is not permitted in the sports where the athletes are majority black. But in, and in hockey in particular, it's just a part of the game and everybody's okay with it and we laugh at it and it doesn't have the same you know appearance of malice that it does ba when the players ba are black. Baseball That's suspended that, a pitcher seven games for taunting someone last week. No punches were thrown. You know, the NBA outlawed fighting after one of the most gruesome punches you'll ever see thrown. Um, and when it came back with the malice at the palace, it was dealt Were you talking with. about Kermit Washington? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I was talking, talking about Kermit Washington. Washington. I was like, I, 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 I was going to say, I, was, I didn't think Jermaine O'Neal's <laughs> punch was that hard on that fan. That the game, I was like, it wasn't that bad. The okay. player <laughs> that Tom Wilson is most reminiscent of, I think, in recent years is Grayson Allen. He's Ooh. a guy who Ooh. is helped lead Duke to a national championship as a freshman, was a really good college player, made it to the NBA on the strength of his shooting ability and to some degree his all-around game, but is known for tripping people, fouling people flagrantly, seeming to have very little control over it, always kind of insisting that he's going to change and then never quite doing it for people saying that he's dirty um, and him getting very petulant about it and his teams and, and coaches kind of defending him. But I, I, I think where that analogy sort of failed, like I think that there's a lot of similarities there, but I do feel like even though Tom Wilson isn't a goon, even though he's not only a fighter, there is just this culture that valorizes that behavior in hockey. Whereas 
with Grace now, and people are just like, what is going on with this? Like, what is the deal with this guy? Like, it's just really weird. Whereas in hockey, it's like not really that weird <laughs> that there's a guy who's like good at scoring goals and also punches people. It's like, it it maybe is an outlier and like, okay, you're telling us like, okay, it's just the Tom Wilson thing and he's like fighting is down or whatever. But it's like, if you told me and I like didn't know that this guy existed, like there's a guy who's good at scoring goals and also punches people, I'd be like, okay, that seems kind of normal. Like that doesn't seem <laughs> super weird to me. And so I don't, I don't think we can just say if Tom Wilson was like, you know, banned from the game uh, forever, like there would still be some cultural issues <laughs> that would need to be dealt with in hockey for us to say that like, okay, everything seems like cool now. I mean, it's, it, it's not, it's not dissimilar to what we continue to still hear with, with the NFL. You know, we're waiting for somebody to do something that results in someone dying on the field. You know, when he flung around um, Artemi Panarin of the Rangers and threw him to the ice without his helmet on, that dude, is it his head on the ice instead of his shoulder? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where I think you're wrong, Joel, in saying that we're giving, the NHL attention that it wants. I mean, like a lot of the stories that get national attention with the NHL are with like guys getting hit in the boards and like nearly paralyzed or like, you know, things that I think the league isn't happy for, for people to be looking at and talking about. Does anybody play uh, hockey video games anymore? Do either of you all do Not that? Not since anymore? NHL 94 you know? on Sega Genesis. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say that. Uh, well, anyway, I guess like the issues, do they still have fighting in hockey games? One of our listeners let us know because like obviously the NHL leaned in heavy on that. And of course, I'm playing video games like this is 25 years ago, so I don't know. But they used that. I mean, that used to be a sales strategy for the game, um, and I think that obviously this benefits them in ratings terms. Like obviously, the the hit we're talking about that Tom Wilson did is bad. The the fighting that happened in the game after the line brawl that's good for them, and I don't think I think that's hard to argue against. Is that. most important to look at here is the way the response to Tom Wilson has been pretty universal in spite of what you said, Josh. I think we heard from former NHL enforcers who said that this was bad. John Scott, Wilson crossed the line. He called it gutless, terrible hockey, and that could have bad consequences for players being allowed to do whatever they want in the scrum. Another former enforcer, Matt Cook, said that Wilson looked like a toddler having a fit. And Cook went on to say, and this was the most interesting thing I read, is that when he behaved that way in the league, he actually was forced to change by his team, the Pittsburgh Penguins. And he said that it, I looked at like 50 hours of video. I had like long conversations with coaches and front office people on that team, and I actually tried to change. And there were still episodes after that where um, Cook was involved in dangerous plays. But he did change the way he played. And what he said here is that personally, I don't think Tom's reached the point where it's grabbed enough, where it's grabbed his attention enough to cause him the desire to change. I mean, Wilson stood up in the penalty box and was like flexing without his jersey on after this all happened. Um, so if it's not just about Tom Wilson, it's about the message that Tom Wilson is going to hear and that front offices are going to transmit to other players. You know, if the NHL is not going to be the force here to change this overnight and to allow this to continue for another decade or two while it continues to peter out of the game, you know, it's going to take other people to recognize that this is the wrong way to play hockey. And the players are aware of the consequences of their playing um, to, their, to, their, to their heads and their futures. 
I just want to say one one other thing, which is that it's a convenient narrative for all these people to say that this is just one bad apple. I mean, it's like police unions saying, mm-hmm. oh, that one cop is bad. Like, then you mm-hmm. don't have to take a closer look at if it's only a Tom Wilson problem and if all of the old, like, you know, goons are being like, oh, yeah, that's that guy. That's the issue. Then, okay, you don't need to, like, more closely examine the whole kind of culture of, of the thing. It's like, okay, the, the barrel's fine. Just get rid of that bad apple. In our next segment, the fastest podcast in the industry talks about another fast guy, DK Metcalf. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply On Sunday in Walnut, California, Seattle Seahawks wide receiver DK Metcalf finished last in his 100-meter heat at the USA Track and Field Golden Games and Distance Open. That was to be expected. Metcalf is a football player and a 230-pound muscle-bound one at that. He was going up against a field of professional sprinters, albeit not necessarily the guys that are going to be representing the U.S. in the Olympics, but professional sprinters nonetheless. Um, but Joel, the consensus coming out of the event on Sunday was that Metcalf, who ran a 10-3-7 in the 100, did better than expected. Um, and so what do you, our resident expert on sprinting and football and football player sprinting, make of DK Metcalf's performance on Sunday? Well, I had a lot of thoughts, uh, obviously. But do you know who was probably most pissed yesterday? whoever Ole Miss's track coach was when DK Metcalf was there on campus, because they're like, hey, why didn't you have all of this zest for sprinting when you were here in Oxford, right? Um, But, I mean, how could you not be impressed? I mean, the fact that DK was willing to go out there and run against professional sprinters, knowing the odds were long, says something about him in his competitive spirit. Like, I would never deny that, like, just the attempt to do it is amazing. And considering that this is a guy who hasn't competitively sprinted since high school, where he was good but not great, I think he ran a 14.89 in the 110-meter hurdles and finished second in his classification in Mississippi in high school. That's pretty good but not great. Um, I mean, to run a 10-3-7 and not have run a competitive 100 in years, that's unbelievable. And and, and, and let alone at 230 pounds. Like that's, you know, from getting down the start, from being able to maintain your form to all those other things, that's just like, that's not supposed to happen. What he did is not supposed to happen. I thought he was going to run like a 10-5 or 10-6. To run a 10-3-7 is absolutely amazing. I think Otto Bolden, the former Olympic sprinter and now NBC commentator, predicted he would run like a Mm 10-7 or so. And it seems like, Stefan, everyone who kind of knew anything about this thought he would do worse than he than he ended up doing and this is minimal training and coaching correct i mean let's all remember that people who do athletic things professionally spend their entire lives training Mm -hmm. to do these things 
in the space of a few months, DK Metcalf went on a track with top sprinters and turned in a credible performance, beyond credible, remarkable performance. And like, yeah, put it into context, 1037 is like doesn't make the top 20,000 hundreds in history. Um, but you looked at him, A, standing next to Otto Bolden and standing next to other, to like whoever he was doing the interview with, and you realize like, holy shit, you forget how big NFL players are? <laughs> Nobody has ever forgotten how big DK Metcalf is, if you've seen that photo of him in the weight room. I mean, yeah, DK Metcalf is big compared even to NFL players, like relative to his position. You know what I'm saying? He's big compared to like Mr. Universe contestants. Right, yeah. (laughs) But to to take that body and put it on a track and, you know, after practicing for a few weeks on how to get out of the blocks, how to accelerate through the middle part of the sprint and how to close and still be hanging with the people in his heat was incredible. Um, And it's... You know, you know, I mean, it made me think of like what other athletes have tried to do this, sort of step out of their preferred sport that is a year-round job um, and take a crack at just doing something after training for a little bit um, and doing it beyond credible. Um, I, can we think of other ones recently? I mean, Carly Lloyd kicking in a practice? Well, the classic maneuver here is to just push a bobsled like that's what willie galt did that's what lolo jones has done but um you know the thing that i found so interesting about your first answer joel was talking about how this was really kind of brave and respectful of dk Metcalf because there's a version of this and i think maybe the version that i was expecting or that other people were expecting was like okay it's almost it's almost disrespectful as a guy who's really fast as a football player to be like, oh yeah, I'm faster than all these people. And and this perception that I'm sure you've heard and dealt with, Joel, of like, how hard could it be? You're just like running in a straight line. Like, right. <laughs> and, right. and so isn't there like a version of this where it's almost like he's dissing these people by going out onto the track and being like, I can beat all of you guys. I think he went out there with a lot of humility and he seemed to, uh, um, after the race, like talk about like, oh, I just wanted to have, I, I'm showing respect to these guys. Like they, they're very good. And I just wanted to see, and keep in mind, in a way it was the US ATF that extended the mm-hmm. invitation because the genesis of this <laughs> is him running down Buda Baker um, in that football game, you know, that incredible rundown uh, on an interception. And everybody was like, holy shit, DK Metcalf is amazing. And so then the US ATF was like, like over 22 miles yeah. per hour, which was one of the fastest sprint. I mean, if you watch that, play that highlight where he runs down Buda Baker. And that's like how important context is. It's like when you watch that, you're like, I've never seen anyone run this fast in my entire life. <laughs> Wearing 10 pounds right. of equipment. Yeah. Right, right. Like maybe it would have been fair if all the other sprinters yesterday had had to wear like a helmet and shoulder pads and, you know, thigh pads or whatever, right? And maybe that would have evened things out. But yeah, I mean, I think that it was um, respectful and it's, you know, I, you know, I mean, he, they allowed him to compete. He gave a credible performance. Like he finished last, but he just barely finished mm-hmm. last. Like he got edged at the table. And he ran faster so, than two guys in the other heat. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't How think much it faster was do you feel running w- without pads or just like running on a track versus running on a, like, when you had like a breakaway, like running for a long touchdown, did you feel as fast 
as you did running on on a straightaway on a on a track, or can you tell that you're faster when you're like wearing spikes and when you're like? Oh yeah, you, you know. definitely feel a lot faster on a track with fewer clothes. You know, absolutely. I mean, that's it. I mean, I think the the tell of that is everybody when they run forty yard dashes at the NFL Combine, they're basically wearing underwear. You know what I mean? Like it, you really do feel a lot sleeker. My old, my old track coach used to say aerodynamic. Like I, you know, I cut my hair and everything. It's just anything to shave an inch. Uh, or, or, or a millisecond off of your time, um, you really do feel much faster. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 I think it does matter. But I don't know, man. I mean, for for DK Metcalf to run a ten three seven is uh, so. I think I, I was looking at some of the times. Like if you ran that time, he would be among the top eighty five ninety sprinters in NCAA track. That's pretty good, man. I mean, again, as we said, these are people that are giving their lives over. To running track and for him to just step out there and do it like that that's incredible man i don't i mean I, I guess the thing is is that it makes me wonder what the other really fast guys in the nfl could do right like that like that's the next step isn't it like what would tyreek hill do what would henry ruggs do henry ruggs ran 427 at the in the 40 of the nfl combine last year like what could these guys do given the opportunity to train and run against these you know the you know running in a fast heat because i also think running against fast people makes you faster what which all what i really liked about this was and this is what you alluded to josh is the 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 dk metcalf is not a jerk you know, it was clear all along that DK Metcalf respected the craft of being a sprinter. He wasn't saying, oh, man, I can go out there and make the Olympic team. He was saying, I want to try. He was saying that, actually. He, well, he did say, I want to try. I, I mean, I thought that it's sort of like the, he was so humble after the, after the fact. I mean, but, you know. Because he, <laughs> he, he got humbled. But, anyway, he got humbled, but that's yeah. not to say that, right, if he had, if he has the, if he could train and lose 30 pounds, right, of muscle, maybe DK Metcalf could be a, a, a top-level sprinter. But the fact that he was willing to try but not do it a sort of a half-assed way is what I mean. He didn't just say, like, I'm taking my pads off and I'm going to run 100 and compete with these guys. He did spend time training. He was respectful of what it would take to get good at this. He's also, like, such a phenomenally gifted human being that he was able to do this with minimal training. So the NBC Sports Olympic site had a list of the fastest NFL players um, for 100 meters. And a lot of it is like track guys. I think maybe all of it is track guys who also played football as opposed to football players who moonlighted in, in track. I'm, I mean, a guy that I have a very close personal relationship with is uh, Trendon Holiday. Personal relationship <laughs> oh, meaning yeah, like that it. I watched him on TV a lot, <laughs> ran a 10 flat and legitimately was trying to make the Olympics and is like five foot five and, um, you know, played a little bit and they, they would run gadget plays for him at LSU, but like was mostly a kick and punt returner. And like that dude, you could tell like something different was going on when he would get, you know, uh, in the open fields, uh, on a, on a kickoff. But like the, you know, on the, the list of guys here, like you have to go down to Daryl green, um, and number eight on this list who ran a 10, Point zero eight to get to a guy who's like a legit, like he's a Hall of Famer, and so I mean he might be the most impressive. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, ever in terms of being a legitimate 
beyond legitimate, all-time great NFL player who could have potentially been an Olympic sprinter if he had just done that. I mean, he almost maybe could have been an Olympic sprinter even just in his NFL career. I mean, Joel, does watching him, did he strike you as a guy who was different oh, than other people on this list? Daryl Green, in one way, you know, another, a, a, the other thing about Daryl Green is that every, when we were younger, there used to be the NFL's fastest man competition. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Daryl Green won it a number, I think a couple times, maybe two or three times. And it was clear that like Daryl Green was that dude. Like what I think of fastest NFL players in in history, or at least in the course of my lifetime, I think of Daryl Green. Like I'm sure if you're older, if you're like my dad's age, you probably think of Bob Hayes, right? Because um, Bob Hayes was sort of the the sprinter NFL guy uh, of his generation. But I always think of Daryl Green as oh man, like that is for as long as he was in the NFL, he was the fastest guy and probably could have given a credible made a, a credible sprinting career of it. And I mean, just actually looking at that list that you shared with us, Josh, um, you know, starting with Jim Hines at 995 and going down to Trendon Holiday at 10 flat, like those times, if anything, put into stark relief the distance between an elite sprinter and whatever it is that DK Metcalf is doing. 1037 is a great time, especially for a 230-pound guy. It wouldn't have even got... DK Metcalf on the medal stand at the at, at the Texas State Championships in the hundred meter dash this past mm-hmm. weekend. Like that's I mean that's how fast fast people are. People that are running track, that's how fast it is. So like why DK Metcalf was extremely impressive. Do not go out there thinking that shit. Like that's just not something that can happen for most guys. Like well, for- here's a here's a question though, Joel, that I think a lot of people might wonder. It's that why are the people that were in the top three in the Texas high school you know, meet this mm-hmm. past weekend. Why don't they play football? Is it that they're not good at football or is yeah. it that they decided that, oh, we're just like, we want to focus on on track? Because that the idea is like the way that capitalism works is like you'd go to the thing that is the most remunerative. And if you're that athletic, then like, could these people be really good at football or is for some reason they're not good at football and so they have to settle for just being amazingly fast and doing it on the track. I definitely think it's two things. One is that just because you're fast doesn't mean you're good at football because I mean it the thing about football that makes you good is not straight line speed, it's like lateral quickness. Um, you know, being able to take a hit you know, running with pads. Using like your those hands to catch a ball. Using, using your hands, <laughs> right. Exactly. And then also, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot more opportunity in football. There's so many more football scholarships than there are track scholarships. Um, just because you're really good at track doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to get a good, a good scholarship or a scholarship somewhere else. Like, if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a great athlete in high school, and let's just say that you're marginally competitive in sprinting, let's say you run a 10-3 in the 100 in high school, but you also have football offers. Well, you have a much better, you, you can probably go to LSU or you could go to Texas or, you know, a big school and play football as opposed to like trying to hack it out and go to, you know, Midwestern State and Wichita Falls or whatever. Or I, I can't remember if it's in Wichita Falls, Abilene, but, it, but nevertheless, you know what I'm saying? Like it, you, you, the route you might have to take and the distance to the money in track is so much further than it is that if you go play football. So I think that's why people ultimately make that decision. And I think that um, like someone like Trendon Holiday sort of shows just how gifted you have to be at two things to do them extremely well. I mean, Trendon Holiday played, you know, ran in the Olympic trials. 
in 2008 yeah. and then stuck in the league for four, four seasons. The, and that's very different from some of the other guys on that list who in the 60s and 70s and early 80s were drafted or, or signed as a sort of gimmick, right? The fastest men in the world, let's put them in pads and see what they can do. That was the case with Jim Hines. That was the case with Bob Hayes. That was the case with Willie Galt. Basically every Raiders wide receiver of the last And we're, years. We're, right, we don't right. see that so much anymore <laughs> because of specialization in sports so that the football players are better than they were 40 and 50 years ago. And the track stars are better than they were 40 and 50 years ago. It's much more competitive. It's, you know, it's not, it, it doesn't translate. You couldn't pick any of those guys that, that um, DK Metcalf ran against on Sunday and maybe sign them to a contract and bring them into camp. It's not going to work. There's too much competition. Too many players are better. Well, Trendon Holiday was considered a gimmick in football. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like he had a hard time getting a scholarship. Um, he, only got a scholarship at LSU because he like went to a camp with like a friend. Like he wasn't even invited to the camp, and they saw how fast he was. We're like, all right, we'll give you a, a scholarship. But because he was so small, he got I think tr- pushed more into the track side mm-hmm. of things because the he wasn't considered as as legit. But I guess another question for you, Joel, is let's say college football just like shut down for a year, not for a pandemic, but shut down for a year, and like every fast college football player just got pushed into track and like got like elite sprinting like training would some number of these football players yes. like then become the US Olympic team yeah absolutely i think that well maybe not the US Olympic team but they would be they would run faster than DK Metcalf, friend. Yeah, right, it, right. And I and I was just reading about this the other day. Uh, yeah, Sean Taylor was, uh, you know, the the, the late uh, Washington football team safety was a Big East sprint champion. Um, you know, and I mean this this was a much more common thing even twenty years ago that you know football guys also did both. Deion Sanders ran track in college. There, you know, there are a lot of guys that that used to pull it off. So I definitely think that if they got that sort of training, but one thing to keep in mind too is that like 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 Stefan was talking about in terms of specialization, there are not very many not not very many elite athletes or elite sprinters that are heavier than 200 pounds. Like maybe one of the biggest ones that I can think of in my lifetime was like Linford Christie. Um, he was a you know great sprint champion. I think he was, maybe he was a silver medalist in one of the Olympics uh, out of UK. And he was like 190 pounds. You know what I mean? He, but he looked big, like he looked huge, but he was only 190 pounds. And so like, that's the other piece of it is that the way the guys are now, like the, the trainings are just so different and they depart from each other in a way that they didn't used to. So it would take a while, but they would need that year just to get down to lose weight, get the, the start training, get the technique work just to be able to compete at the level of these guys. They could do it, but it would just be really, really difficult. I mean, Usain Bolt is the outlier in everything when we talk about track, right? He was 6'5", he was over 200 pounds. And I just Googled because I didn't remember, but he did get offers to try out the NFL. I mean, and he, the, the NFL combine record is 4.22 in the 40. And a few years ago, after he retired, Usain Bolt ran a 4.22 in sweats. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just and a dress different. shoes, I think. Yeah. It's, di- it's a different, different, different caliber. Don't, don't you also, speed. don't you also, I mean, one other thing is like 
one reason sprinters probably wouldn't want to play football now is that we know a lot more about concussions today than we did uh, 20, 10, 15 years ago. Why go and put your head on the line if you And you know what? Bob Hayes to. couldn't make any money running track. You can make money running track today. And after the break, we'll go into after balls. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. In our conversation about the NBA play-in tournament, I mentioned how the league has modified its playoff formats pretty dramatically over the years. Uh, For its records, the NBA counts three seasons of the Basketball Association of America, the BAA, from 1946 through 1949, and they did some weird playoff formatting there. 1949-50, though, is the first season under the name NBA. There were 17 teams, 10 of 12 were from the BAA, six were from the older National Basketball League, and there was one expansion team. Twelve of those teams made the playoffs, and George Mikan's Minneapolis Lakers won the title, beating the Syracuse Nationals four games to two. But I'm not really interested in the playoff format that year, as I am in the teams that were in the original NBA. There were three divisions— The Western Division consisted of six teams, all of them from the NBL, except for Syracuse, plus the expansion team that I mentioned. All right, so a little trivia, Josh, Joel. Can either of you name two of the teams in the Western Division? I mean, I'll take one, honestly. Fort Wayne. Um, Fort Wayne. Fort Wayne what? Fort Wayne Pistons. (laughs) Cincinnati Royals? Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, you ready for your first clue? Boston Braves? I don't know. Do uh, know? The Western <laughs> Division. No. Your first clue is that one of these teams has a franchise in the current NBA. Kansas City Kings? In the, <laughs> no, man. With their current name. Huh. Okay. Minneapolis Lakers? The... Uh, Je- Rochester Royals. I'm just naming jazz. a bunch of old timey teams. The New Orleans Jazz. Get any of these. Here we go. Ready? Yeah. Right. Here are the here are the six teams in the Western Division of the NBA in 1949. St. Louis Hawks. St. Louis Hawks. <clears throat> okay. Right. Fine. The Indianapolis Olympians. Oof. The Anderson Packers. Wait, Anderson in what state? <laughs> I'll give you it if you can get the state. Then we're in great shape. Indiana. Okay. Um. They played, they had an offensive Native American mascot, and they played their home games in the Anderson High School Wigwam. Oh, uh, actually, three teams in this division had Native American nicknames. The Tri-Cities Blackhawks, I'm not sure which three cities were in the Tri-Cities. The Sheboygan Washington football team name, except it was two words, <laughs> not one. <laughs> the Waterloo Hawks. Wow. And the Denver Nuggets. What? (laughs) 
imagine that road trip. I mean, for everybody else, by the way, going from Anderson to D- Denver. Wow. Josh, what's your Anderson Packer? Last week, we had Ben Lindbergh on the show to talk about the year of the pitcher in baseball and what should be done about it. In the intervening seven days, the pitchers have only gotten more terrifying. In the minors, Reds prospect Hunter Green threw 37 pitches at 100 miles per hour or greater in a single start with his fastest pitch clocking in at 102.6. The Mets' Jacob deGrom gave up one run and one hit in five innings on Sunday, increasing his season ERA to 0.68. And John Means of the Orioles and Wade Miley of the Reds both threw no-hitters last week, meaning there have been four no-hitters already this year. That's 1.3% of all the no-hitters in Major League history in just over a month. Does that include the seven-inning no-hitter that wasn't a no-hitter? It does not. So there were five. Actually, just saying that there have been four no-hitters this year, or five, doesn't quite capture it because we're very close to seeing the 24th and 25th perfect games in Major League history. Carlos Rodon's no-hitter last month was nearly perfect, but the White Sox pitcher hit a batter in the foot in the ninth inning. And the aforementioned John Means got even closer to perfection. The one guy that got on base against the Orioles starter actually struck out. He made it to first because of a wild pitch on that strikeout. Only time in history that a dropped third strike cost a pitcher a perfect game. This was not the closest any pitcher has ever gotten to a perfect game without it being a perfect game. In 2010, the Detroit Tigers' Armando Galarraga retired the first 26 batters in a row, before umpire Jim Joyce called the Indians' Jason Donald safe at first on an infield grounder. Replays show Donald was clearly out. It wasn't even that close. But replay review was not yet a thing in Major League Baseball, so nothing could be done about it. Galarraga, as you'll recall, murdered Joyce, but a judge ruled that he was not guilty (laughs) by reason of that bastard costing him a perfect game. No, actually, Galarraga was famously a very good sport. He said after the game of Jim Joyce, nobody's perfect. And he handed Joyce the lineup card before the next game. General Motors gave Galarraga a Corvette. John Stewart awarded him a Medal of Reasonableness at the 2010 rally to restore sanity or fear. That just sounds just, I mean, horrible, but go ahead. That's fine. (laughs) Galarraga and Joyce actually co-wrote a book together called nobody's perfect for which i award them minus 50 sportsmanship points for non-creative titles (laughs) i also just discovered the singer songwriter dan byrne immortalized galarraga and joyce in song let's take a listen joyce and galarraga joyce and galarraga joyce and galarraga perfect game no joyce and galarraga joyce and galarraga joyce and galarraga Twenty-six men up, twenty-six men down. Galarraga with the game of his career. The twenty-seventh, yes. But Joycey blew the call. Now go and drown your sorrows for a year or ten years. Joyce and Galarraga, Joyce and Galarraga. You dug deep for that one, bud. Um, did you hear that last lyric, Joel? Drown your sorrows for a year or ten years. Oh, I did not hear that part. That's what poetry. <laughs> Little did Dan Byrne know, but 10 years after that blown call, 10 years, precisely, in May 2020, Galarraga did an interview with Cody Stavenhagen of The Athletic. Galarraga is now 38. He finished his career with a record of 26 and 34. He told Stavenhagen, 
I had something in mind I will share with you. That something was a question. How can Major League Baseball give me the perfect game? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because it was perfect, right? <laughs> so there was talk at the time about overturning the call retroactively, giving Galarraga the perfect game, but it never happened. Never really had a chance of happening. There was actually a survey of 100 players done at the time. Only 13% thought that overturning the call was the right thing to do. And to the extent that history is relevant here, it goes against Galarraga. In 1959, Harvey Haddix threw 12 perfect innings before he gave up a bunch of base runners and lost the game in the 13th. For three decades, Major League Baseball actually considered that a perfect game. But they took it away from Haddix in 1991, saying that a perfect game has to be completed and be perfect in its completion for it to count. To which Haddix responded in 1991, It's okay. I know what I did. That statement is what makes the Galarraga case so interesting. In 2010, he said, essentially, it's okay. I know what I did. And he was rewarded for it. He got the acclaim, the admiration, the Corvette. Now he's saying, it's not okay, because I know what I did. Which is fine, if he feels that way. But it doesn't quite fit with the let bygones be bygones image that got attached to him a decade ago. And so... The lesson here is, check in with people who say, I'm not mad, actually it's funny to me, every 10 years or so, to make sure they're still not mad, and that it's still actually funny to them, because their answer might change, and it might surprise you. Isn't it better for him this way? Like, I mean, we know that, like, what he did is more memorable than pretty much all but like a handful of no-hitters, right? Like, I mean, I, I don't... I feel like he's more famous for doing this than if he had actually thrown a known hitter, to be honest. You're ruining your name, Big Cat. That's his nickname, right? He's the Big Cat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Big Cat, you're ruining your name, bud. You should just no, not that's even fight this. No, this is a I different... Think, I think Big Cat was Andre Scalaraga. Andre Scalaraga. There were that yeah. many Galarragas in Major League Baseball? All right. Well, I, I apologize. I guess he wasn't as well-known as I thought. I'd say that, that he played it perfectly. He got all the sympathy on the Corvette when he needed it. And now, who's really going to pay attention when he bears his soul? Should he lose his medal of reasonableness? That, I think, is what everyone everyone wants to know. He probably already sold the Corvette. Man, it was too bad. I thought, I, you know, I made a mistake. I thought that he was the famous Galarraga in Major League Baseball and got it wrong. And I thought that that, you know, this thing had actually distinguished him, but maybe he did not. So, I, you know, whatever you need to feel okay uh, Mr. Galarraga, then I think you should pursue it because it's your life and you've got to be the one to decide if this is okay or not. That is our show for today where we're providing free therapy for all Galarragas. Our producer this week is Margaret Kelly. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Oh, you're also supposed to let us know if they're still fighting in hockey video games. Don't forget about that. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 